Mama, we go with Jeremy Scott. From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, welcome to the program tonight. It is good to have you back with us yet again on this Saturday into Sunday for some of you. You know, one of my most fascinating subjects to talk about over the years, I've admitted that the bulk of the books in my library are actually of the UFO variety. Uh, There's been some things that have been happening of late, but it's also good to kind of catch up on what has been happening with some of the other events that we have known to exist through the decades uh, that may have some new development. So come with us on this ride tonight. You know, over the decades, there have been UFOs that we have heard about being attracted to major events. There are two recent examples of this that come to mind. There was a celebration that happened last month for Queen Elizabeth. And during that event, there was an orb-like object that uh, appeared to accompany the military craft that were flying in the Queen's honor. And just this past week, we had another incident that took place after the fireworks show in Phoenix. These were glowing orbs that were seen in the sky. Uh, It was as if they were witnessing the show. And, of course, Phoenix, the home uh, to the sightings in 1997 that are the largest mass sightings ever in the United States. It seems like there is still something happening there in the Phoenix area. And, of course, we've documented the fascination that UFOs have displayed at major events, as I have said, including uh, nuclear weapons facilities, movie theaters, sporting events, and other events where there are a large amount of people who could be a witness to this UFO activity. But more telling than those lights in the sky, though, are the reports uh, over the decades of these craft that seemingly are not from here that have crashed. Others, they've landed. They've taken back off. Sometimes uh, with authorities uh, or curious spectators in pursuit. I mean, like the 1964 case, which comes to mind, is witnessed by police officer Lonnie Zamora in uh, Socorro, New Mexico. 1965, a year later, we had an acorn object with some hieroglyphic-type Writing that crashed in, uh, crash landed actually in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And of course, we all know about the Roswell case of 1947. That was the first mainstream report of crashed flying saucers in the U.S. While over in the U.K., the Rendlesham Forest incident of 1980 is referred to as Britain's Roswell, in which UFOs actually landed on a military base. But there are many more. Of these incidents where UFOs have crashed or they have landed and taken back off. And we're going to hear about some of those cases tonight. But why are these objects crashing? There are a couple of theories on why they are crashing. I think we can understand when an object lands and takes back off and is visible over a major event that they're probably interested in the human race. But for those that, uh, you know, don't make it, they, they crash. And in some cases, you know, there are bodies that are recovered or that are seen at some of these crash sites. Why do some crash and others don't? Well, there's a couple of theories, as I mentioned, about that. And, and one of those is that 
they could be going too fast. That time where they exist is not the same as the time where we are. And it, it could be that the speed has something to do with that. And, and in some cases, these objects have been seen going incredibly fast. For instance, during last month's UFO hearing, which uh, took place in the Brazil Senate, there were five pilots that came forward to testify about their sighting that happened in 1986 of over a dozen mysterious bright objects. Now, some of those were as wide as football fields. Just imagine that. Something as big as a football field in the sky that, get this, was traveling at more than 11,000 miles per hour. Now, these pilots testified that there were hundreds of witnesses and that the troops on, uh, on the ground as well were witness to what those in the air saw. And the objects did not appear on radar. Fighter jets scrambled, they chased the objects, and as we've heard in so many cases, a cat and mouse game ensued. Just think about objects traveling at more than 11,000 miles per hour. If they came in and they came down at that speed, and they weren't able to control that speed, they seemingly could lose control and crash. And of course, there's another theory that has been discussed over the years, and that is that they die from the radiation on Earth, and then there's nobody to pilot the craft, and hence they die. Tonight, we welcome two esteemed members of the UFO community. Researcher Philip Mantle is here first. He's author of, author from the UK, was the former director of investigations for the British UFO Research Association and the Mutual UFO Network's representative for England. He is the founder of Flying Disc Press. Welcome back, Philip. So good to have you here. Yeah, good evening, gentlemen. Nice to speak to you. Absolutely. All the way from the other side of the world where it is the middle of the night, we so appreciate you uh, burning the midnight oil for us. Now, you, what do you have to say about what uh, you've heard on the show so far, Philip? Well, you know, I, I, I remain um, a tad skeptical about UFO crashes, or so I should say some of them, uh, simply because they tend to mimic our own uh, attempts at space travel. Um, for example, I think something like half of all the missions to Mars have ended in disaster. You know, they've crashed or they've gone off course or, or, or whatever. And, um, you know, it would seem a bit odd for me if we're dealing with something that's, you know, interstellar, you know, you know extrasolar, not from our solar system. It travels all that way and then as soon as it gets here, it crashes. So I remain a little bit sceptical, I must admit, but not totally. I, 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 I don't really tell. And, of course, as, as Kevin will know far better than I, that are the details that he will discuss about Roswell probably, and why not? But, you know, we're just on the anniversary there. So uh, I, I, I take some of it with a little bit. I'm, I mean, I, I was interested in what you, you said about the, the pilots there in Brazil and these things moving at 11,000 miles per hour. Yeah, that's crazy. I, well, it is crazy. But if that's going across the sky, you wouldn't see it for long, would you? Because if it could, <laughs> you know, be out of sight in no time. So, I, 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 again, I have trouble when they say going at so many thousand miles per hour um, it'd be gone. You know, you, you wouldn't be able to see it for very long. 
But nonetheless, I am convinced that these things are real. They are worthy of study. For example, I spoke to a wing commander here in the UK um, a, a few years back, and um, he had top secret security clearance. He was now retired in the Royal Air Force. And back in the 1960s, he was on uh, on duty. And, and his security clearance was so high that when the, the, the US spy plane came into U, the UK to refuel, which he did, um, he was notified. And it was the most secret aircraft in the world, bar none. But he tracked six targets over mainland UK that he could not identify. He double-checked with other air stations and Heathrow, and they also confirmed it. Uh, and it wasn't, when I asked him about their speed, it wasn't the speed, you know, going from point A to point B. It was their rate of climb that amazed him because they had two sorts of radar that tracked it. Mm -hmm. And he reported that to the Ministry of Defence, of course, but you, can, you won't find that in any of the files that have been released. And that was a wing commander, Alan Turner, MBE, you know, has an award from Her Majesty the Queen. And um, we only heard about his story quite by chance. He heard two friends of mine in a pub talking about UFOs at the bar, and he interrupted them and said, come here, gents, I've got something I'd like to tell you. So, you know, th these things are there, they are real, uh, and they are worthy of our investigation. And what is clear from our own Ministry of Defence is that they do not know what these things are. They're, they're, they'll openly admit that. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they say, and they've always said, that their only interest in UFO reports was from a defence point of view. Defence point of view means, was it the Soviets? If it wasn't the Soviets, then they literally were rarely, rarely interested in anything else. And they openly admit the things in the sky that they, you know, cannot identify, but they believe there could well be explanations for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So, um, but they are there, and, and it does not surprise me that these Brazilian pilots have come forward. And, and I think AJ Javad and his colleagues down in Brazil have done a great job. I know AJ personally. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see what else uh, co comes from it. Yeah, indeed. It does seem like there are other countries who are starting to gauge the interest in this. Brazil, and of course, uh, right after the U.S. had their congressional hearing, uh, there was uh, some interest that was sparked up in Canada uh, on Parliament uh, from one member uh, asking, "Hey, why are we not doing? Why are we not doing enough about this?" Uh, I mean, do you think that this is going to grow globally? I don't see why not. I mean, for, for example, it, it differs from country to country. If you look at Italy, for example, mm -hmm. my, my colleagues there, probably the best known is Roberto Pinotti. They've had a very good um, working relationship with their military. Roberto himself was in the military as a as a young uh, a young man, um, and they've they've got some good cooperation at times. Here in the UK, you see, it's, you know, it's, it's dead. Military cooperation is dead. Um, you know, we are covered by the Official Secrets Act, which is grossly out of date. You know, um, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. Going back to the 1980s, a friend of mine who worked in a textile mill, he said, I have signed the Official Secrets Act. And I said, get away with you. I thought it was, I thought it was pulling my leg, you know, I thought he was having a laugh. He said, no, I have signed the Official Secrets Act. 
He says, well, why the hell have you signed it? He said, we actually make uh, cloth that is used for military dress uniforms. Therefore, we have to sign the official secrets. Is this anything special about this cloth? He says, no, we, we use it for other things as well. So it encompasses anything and everything, and it's grossly outdated. Uh, and it's, at, at times, it can, like, like, like defence implications in the US, it can be used as a, as a catch-all if they want to hide something. You know, simple as that. So give us a perspective of how many landing cases and, and over what period you've uncovered over there in the UK. Um, I, I couldn't give you a, a definitive number. Um, but when I started um, looking into these cases, there was more than perhaps I'd even imagined myself. Bearing in mind, geographically, we're only a small country, you know, Um I still get colleagues in the state saying, what time zone do you live in? Well, we're not big enough to have more than one time zone. You know, uh, it kind of makes me smile at times. Um, so we're relatively small in that respect. So you can't be that far from one of these incidents. And, um, you know, we've got, we've got some going back to the, the 1800s. Uh, and, and it depends how you want to interpret things. But we certainly had cases that were pre-Kenneth Arnold. Um, some of which were was a, a gentleman I interviewed myself. Um, he'd been in the RAF during the war, based here in England, and seen a UFO land right outside his RAF base, by the way. Um, so I couldn't give you the definitive number because there are cases that you know I'm simply not aware of. But um, some of some more have been brought to my attention once I published my book, UFO Landings UK. And I'm very grateful for colleagues pointing these out to me. I say at the, I say at the start of the book, it's not meant to be definitive, uh, you know, it, and it never can. But it does surprise me how many uh, there have been. There's more than I expected, and in and and some of them, Jeremy, are, are weird and wonderful. I can assure you. I use Dr. Heineck's um, uh, <clears throat> phrase, high strangeness, uh, and some of these are very strange. Uh, very strange indeed. Um, and it kind of left me scratching my head at times, you know. But there you go. That, that's just what the way things are. So well, tell us about one of the uh, first cases you investigated, uh, which was where? Uh, West Yorkshire? Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is a good example. And it's a good example of how technology can help today, even though I investigated this back way back in 1980. I, I'd not long stepped into the UFO pond and, and began to investigate cases. I joined a, a local organization called the Yorkshire UFO Society. And that was formed by two brothers, Mark and Graham Bertel. And, and I had a piece in our local newspaper and um, a lady rang me and she said, Philip, you won't believe me. You won't believe me. You won't believe me. You know, now where I lived um, and where I was born was a, a, a very industrial community. All this area was all coal mines. And she lived in a little town just a few miles from where I live today called Normanton. So I went to see her. She was called Mrs. Westerman. And it had been a lovely summer's day. Now, she lived in a, 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 a row of terraced houses with no houses opposite. And it was a cul-de-sac. So there were, it was a dead end. And she was in an elevated house, so he went six or seven steps up to get in the front door. Her children and, one, and their friends were playing a, a ball game outside. 
And one of them come running in. Uh, Mrs. Westerman was just washing the dishes after lunch. And she said, Mom, Mom, there's an aeroplane crashed in the field. So at the bottom of this cul-de-sac with some trees, a little stream, uh, and a field. And the field had some electricity pylons in it. So when Mrs. Westerman came out of the front door, because it was elevated, she could see across these fields. And she said, it wasn't an aeroplane. It was something shaped like a Mexican hat, you know, on the ground. So she got the children, went down the street, through the trees. And when you go down to the, the, the stream, you lose sight of this hill. You come up the other side and the hill was bordered by a, a fence. And now this thing is still there. And there are three men in, 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 in white clothing, white boiler suits, we call them. I think you call them, call them coveralls in, in the States, waving something over the ground. And one of the children tried to climb over this fence, but Mrs. Westerman held him back. And then these three men went to the rear of this thing. It rose up and stopped in a clear blue sky and shot off at an angle. It didn't make a sound. You know, it hadn't dented a blade of grass as far as they could, could see. Now, where, where Mrs. Westerman lives, there's a very busy motorway or highway, as you might call it, goes right past that village. It was a lovely summer's day, lots of people out and about. So she sat down at night, thought, I'll watch the TV news, it'll be on there. Nothing. Okay, I'll buy the local newspaper, it'll be in there. Nothing. And, um, and she was as puzzled by that as perhaps almost as much as seeing this thing. And they were very up close and personal. This wasn't a little thing that was hundreds of yards away at the end of this field. They were, you know, only a few yards from it. What is interesting, I just literally had an email this week from a gentleman said, uh, my partner is one of those children who saw that. All, and I, I've been trying to arrange to speak to them. And um, so they've, you know, I've tried to track the children down in the in their interim years, but failed. But one of them has has, has just popped up, so I'm, I may try and get a, you know, a, an adult perspective of something they witnessed as a as a child. And um, but that that was it. I mean, this this, this you know, I hadn't been involved that very that long, Jeremy, and it, I didn't really need convincing, but that convinced me that there was definitely a phenomena here worthy of my time and effort and study. Uh, Mrs. Westerman's husband was a coal miner. My father was a coal miner all his life. You know, I lived in these communities, and, and, and these were the type of people I knew. She wouldn't allow us to use her name. No, I, I don't even have a photograph of her. She wouldn't allow any photographs. Didn't want any publicity. So you have two choices. They're either lying or they're telling the truth. There was no misidentification of it being a helicopter or any damn thing else, you know? And I have no reason to, to, to see why they would want to lie. And so, therefore, I had no choice but to believe these, this, this, this lady and the children, a children's friend. We even spoke to one of her friends, for example. He'd gone home for his lunch. And when he came come back, he missed it all. And he was, he was not happy, you know, he was not happy. And they didn't call them flying saucers or UFOs or spaceships, just this thing and these men. Uh, and I, that got me up and running.
And one of the other big cases over in the UK, I think folks, when they think about UFO cases, particularly landing cases in the UK, they think Rendlesham in 1980. They have to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Rendlesham is known around the world. I haven't included it in my book simply because it is so well known and it's such a, a big case um, that, you know, whole books are being written about it. But it's it's one that still gets mentioned. Um, nothing new as far as I'm aware has materialised in the last few years. But the interesting thing about Rendlesham, of course. Besides the fact that uh, Larry Warren may have uh, at least embellished part of his story, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the good thing about even with Larry and the rest of the witnesses, they're all still alive. Mm-hmm. So um, they still can be... You know, you can still talk to them, you can still interview them. But like you say, you know, some doubt has been cast on Mr. Warren's testimony. Um, and we have to remember as well, let's just keep things in perspective. Um, this was on Forest Commission land. It didn't land on military. The, the forest was in between two air bases, RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge. Both were on license to the United States military. They were a nuclear facility, although... Nobody knew that at the time. I think they were breaking certain um, conventions uh, or bending the rules, let's say. And, you know, there was tension in Eastern Europe. Uh, The Solidarity Movement was on the rise in Poland. You know, Russian tanks were on the border with Poland. Hold that thought. My guest is Philip Mantle, and we'll continue with Crash Landing on Into the Paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott. Paranormal News. Tracking threats in orbit is the focus of a new unit within the United States Space Force. Space Delta 18 will be tasked with identifying threats to our assets to provide critical intelligence on threat systems, foreign intentions, and activities in the space domain, namely those that can damage satellites and other assets or anti-satellite weapons. U.S. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines says the unit is critical to their operations. Our capacity to understand what is happening in the space domain is crucial to our ability to operate in space. In the years ahead, the environment will only become more contested. Space Delta 18 will operate from the National Space Intelligence Center, based out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and will eventually be staffed by about 350 civilian and military personnel. I'm George Henry, Paranormal News. December 1980, early in the morning, several of our security policemen discovered strange lights in the forest. Strange lights in East Anglia, just outside the back gate of RAF Woodbridge. There it is. Hey, I see it too. What is it? We don't know, sir. Can I get some Yeah, it's a strange small red light. Looks beyond maybe a quarter to a half mile, maybe further out. They reported it being triangular, approximately three meters on a side, dark metallic in appearance with strange markings. They observed it for a period of time, and it very quickly and silently vanished, vanished at high speed. The light is gone now. It was approximately 120 degrees. Is it back again? Yes, sir. 
because it's often been described as Britain's Roswell in that there's um, uh, some people who believe that something crashed into the mountain that night. Originating from a remote location, nearly as top secret as Area 51. Yeah, and if you believe that, you'll really like this show. Into the Paranormal. Crash landing tonight on Into the Paranormal. I am Jeremy Scott. We've been talking with Philip Mantle, author of UFO Landings UK, about some of the landing cases. We were talking about the Rendlesham case in 1980, which is one of the big cases out of the UK. It's one of the most notable cases out of the UK. Any other notes on that, Philip, that you want to share with us? Yeah, just like we're saying, it was a, a very sensitive time for the installation. Uh, they also had A-10 tank busters there. And it was over the Christmas period, and it didn't just happen on one night. Some people say two, others say three. And, um, and what is curious about it, the main two witnesses to the events on the first evening are uh, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston, both military, police, or security from the base. They were sent into the forest, and they got close to this thing, whatever it was. I've no doubt these two gentlemen did see something extremely bizarre. However, Jim Penniston will tell you that he saw this this object about the size of a large family car, a station wagon, as you might call them in the States, triangular in shape, either hovering or, or, or just above the ground. Uh, he, had a, he had red lights on top, blue lights underneath. He had some kind of markings on the side of it. He said he walked around it, he touched it, it was smooth, it felt warm. And he said he walked around it for about 45 minutes. However, his colleague, John Burroughs, who was only a matter of yards away from him, said, I never saw any of that. I only saw these strange lights. So, you know, there, there is, um, there is a, 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 a mystery within the mystery, if you, if you like, of Rendlesham Forest. I'm not saying anything untoward here. I do believe both gentlemen and they saw something peculiar. But it's, uh, it's one of those cases that we'll, we'll be arguing about and discussing for many years to come, no doubt. Maybe even as long as Roswell. <laughs> Give us an idea of some of those cases that took place kind of, I guess, before the modern era of UFOs, particularly those in the UK that you focus on. Yeah, yeah. One in particular, um, one in particular that's pre-Kenneth Arnold, um, not the most outstanding, but I, I like to mention it because I had a chance to interview the gentleman himself uh, back in the 1980s. There's a chap called John Warren, and this was in 1943. So it's the middle of the Second World War. Uh, Mr. Warren was in the Royal Air Force, and he was at a place called RAF Ludham which is uh, near Norwich in Norfolk. And um, he was an armourer. So the aircraft that they had on station there, he would prepare them with their bombs and bullets and so on. Uh, he, he got an evening pass and he went to a local dance. And he said, Philip, I, I, I was late and I missed the, the last train back to base. And he said, I had to walk the 12 miles back. And it wasn't necessarily the 12 miles that worried him. The fact is, if you got back late in those days, you could get in trouble, you know. If you, So he, off he goes. He walked the 12 miles back to base. As he's approaching the base, uh, obviously it's, it's dark, but up ahead he could see this 
this green glow. And as he got closer, he says, there was this, this being standing by the side of the road. And it had a, you know, it was humanoid, uh, average height. It had a box on its chest. And from the top of this box was a green light coming out, going upwards. And it kind of distorted the creature's face, a bit like you did with a flashlight when you were a kid, you know. And he um, said behind it on the grass verge, there was an object on the ground that was illuminated, looked a bit like a bell tent. And then on the other side, there were two more of these figures. He said it scared the living daylights out of him. And he ran the short distance now back to Bates. One of his friends had been waiting up for him uh, and let him in through a window so as not to get into trouble. And he told him about it. And he, he said, you know, I interviewed him in the 1980s and uh, he'd reported the incident in the 1970s, um, you know, and um, he said, Philip, you know, he says on base, you know, we had access to to uh, firearms. And he said, but I didn't have one that night. I'd been to a dance. But he said, uh, you know, had I been armed, I would have shot the damn thing because it uh -oh. wasn't us. You know, it wasn't us. If it wasn't us, it must have been the enemy. But, um, you know, uh, so that's pre, that's 1943, middle of the Second World War. And I sat in Mr. Warren's front room and, and, and you know, I felt honoured to do so when he'd tell me all about this. Uh, and I have a photograph of him and, and the, the details are all in, in the book. Even a drawing, he did a little sketch for me that, that day. Uh, fascinating stuff as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, and I now want to bring on Kevin Randall, who's uh, regarded as one of the preeminent experts on the Roswell crashes. We're going to kind of throw it all together here, uh, a mishmash of uh, UFO crashes and landings, uh, I guess, all over. Uh, we're we're going to open it up to here. Uh, Kevin, a best-selling author with over 100 books to his name. He has a Ph.D. in psychology and was in the United States Air Force and National Guard as lieutenant colonel before retiring in 2009. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much. Glad to be here. About your research into these crashed flying saucer cases, can you uh, kind of give us a, a, a synopsis of that? If you take a look around the Internet, you're going to find that um, there's some 300 or more alleged UFO crashes. Some of them are single witness. Some of them uh, are secondhand or thirdhand at best. And I discount most of those as being uh, mistakes, misperceptions, things like that, or, or uh, debris from our own uh, space program and that sort of thing. So you boil it down to just a very few cases of uh, uh, UFO crashes. And, of course, Roswell is the one that kind of sets the standard for that, given the number of witnesses and the reaction by the government. Uh, one of the better cases, I think, is also Shag Harbor in Canada, where the object was... I really don't think of that as a crash. I think of it as more a forced landing where the thing was seen to fall into the water in Shag Harbor and remain there for six or seven days before it, uh, before it left. But it was, there was a response by the Canadian government, the American government. I think the Russians or the Soviets were there as well trying to figure out what this thing was before it uh, disappeared from all the various uh, sensor arrays that they had working on it. So Shag Harbor is a very good an important case with a lot of documentation. Chris Stiles and uh, Don Ledger in Canada have done wonderful work in putting all of that information together. Absolutely. So those are some uh, very, very uh, key examples. Um, and 
what about uh, those over in the in the UK? Uh, your thoughts on on those? Uh, of course, Philip talked about Rendlesham Forest, and I'm not really sure you'd think of that as a crash more than than a landing. A and, landing. Uh, took took place over several days. I think um, the confusion about the number of days. And I finally worked this out after talking to Charles Halt and looking at his book and talking to John Burroughs and Jim Pediston is. Pediston and Burles were involved in two days, but there was an intermediate day in there where other people were involved, and that hasn't gotten a lot of um, interest because the witnesses aren't available, and they didn't see much of anything. And so you've got really three days going on. John Burroughs told me that the area had a history of kind of bizarre uh, manifestations that uh, began before what we're talking about in December of 1980 and afterwards as well. So it's it's kind of in a complex case, and once again, I think of it's more of a landing than than a crash or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So as as far as the Roswell case, I mean that's the big one. People know that there was, uh, you know, there may have been more than one crash site, depending on I guess who you talk to. Uh, but I think what we can agree on is that there was a craft that uh, crashed, and that there were some amount of beings on that craft, and and maybe one survivor or something. What really happened there in Roswell from what you've been able to uh, uncover? Well, if you want to get technical about it, everybody agrees. The whole spectrum of people interested in UFOs agrees that something fell at Roswell. That's what fell is becoming the point of contention. I lean toward the extraterrestrial based on the conversations I've had with a number of the witnesses, firsthand witnesses, people who are no longer with us. And some of the documentation I've seen and some of the history that I understand of what's going on. One of the things, uh, when the Air Force investigated in the mid-1990s this thing, they came up with this Cockamamie Project Mobile Explanation. This was a balloon project being run out of Alamogordo Army Airfield, which is obviously in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which is 110, 120 miles from Roswell. And they would launch these big array of balloons. And the Air Force concluded that one of these balloons is what fell in the... Um, on the Brazel Ranch or the Foster Ranch, and it was recovered. And since Mogul was highly classified, that explains the response by the military. But what they get wrong is that um, the Air Force actually provided the documentation about what was going on in Alamogordo. There was no balloon launch on June 4th, the flight number four, which is now the culprit for it. Uh, that was canceled, and it's clear in the documentation it was canceled. So it couldn't have left the debris. We one of the things I've discovered in going back through the case files is that bits of the debris, samples of the debris, were brought into the sheriff's office on Sunday, July um, 6th, I believe it was. And they called Jesse Marcel in. Well, if it was balloon debris, as we're now being told by the Air Force, it would have been identified at that point. And Marcel would have never gone out to the ranch. He would have never taken Cabot out there, and we'd have a whole different conversation. But he couldn't identify it. From what I understand is flight number four did not have any Raywind targets on it. Raywind targets is what led the metallic debris. This is aluminum foil type stuff. And uh, the Raywind target was designed so that no matter which way it faced, there would always be a flat surface pointing to a radar site, which made it easier for tracking. And it was made out of bright uh, aluminum foil or tinfoil type metal so that it would reflect the sun so people would be able to see it if they were tracking it visually. But according to the documentation, the flights in New Mexico, the early flights in New Mexico, didn't contain Raywind targets. Therefore, there was nothing to leave the metallic debris. It was just a string of balloons and a microphone. 
So uh, it kind of boils down to what exactly fell in Roswell. I lean toward the extraterrestrial. When we get off into some of the other arenas, the idea that there were beings comes from a number of sources, including firsthand sources, people who saw them. Uh, I think of Edwin Easley, who was a provost marshal at Roswell in 1947. Provost marshal being like the chief of police. He was a military officer. And I talked to him about this a number of times, and he told me repeatedly he couldn't talk about it. He was sworn to secrecy. I always got the impression he wanted to help, wanted to tell us as much as he could without violating his oath. And after I talked to him several times, I finally said to him one day, and I was at the Center for UFO Studies um, using their telephone, so I didn't have my recorder on it. And I said to him, um, are we following the right path? And Aisley said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we think it's extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way. It's not the wrong path. In essence, telling us it was extraterrestrial. Every member of Colonel Blanchard's staff, Colonel Blanchard, of course, being the commander at Roswell in 1947, Every member of his staff we could talk to, with a single exception, said it was extraterrestrial, said it was alien, said it was something from outer space. I think at the time they thought of it as more interplanetary, as interstellar. They were thinking of something from inside the, our solar system, probably Mars or Venus at the time. And, of course, we now know Venus would be not a good candidate. But um, they were all thinking in terms of something alien, something from another planet, uh, so we have we have all that kind of information, but 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 the point is there is no terrestrial explanation that's been offered that can that uh, meets all the criterion for what was found. The other point I probably should make is Don Schmidt and I were doing a lot of investigation, and we'd eliminated a lot of explanations: rockets or missiles from white sands. We'd eliminated classical weather balloons. We'd eliminated aircraft accidents. We uh, eliminated even an accident involving an atomic bomb. And you have to remember it. 1947, the 509th Bomb Group in Roswell was the only unit in the world that had the capability to drop atomic bombs. Well, they didn't have the bombs there, the atomic bombs, but they did have mock-ups. And even the size and shape of the um, atomic bomb was classified in 1947. So had they accidentally dropped one on a ranch, then there would have been an effort to clean it up without anybody seeing it. But that's, there's no evidence that that happened. We eliminated all of that stuff. When the Air Force did their investigation, they eliminated it all as well. They told us, yeah, you know, there wasn't a cla- it wasn't an experimental aircraft. It was an aircraft accident. It wasn't this, wasn't that. The only thing Crash left test was test dummies. <laughs> that, came, that came later. That came later. But, but they eliminated everything as we had done with the, the exception of the Project Mogul Balloons, and I think the Project Mogul Balloons have been eliminated based on the documentation available. Philip, what's your thought on the whole Roswell uh, case? I mean, that's the, the top one here in the U.S., I think everyone would agree, besides the Phoenix Lights. Uh, the way I looked upon it, you know, I never met an interview with these gentlemen like Kevin had, but we, we had Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, here, and I spoke to him a number of times. One of the things I put to him, I said, let's assume that the Air Force are right, just for a moment, that this was some kind of balloon, be it mogul or any other thing. And your father made the, this monumental mistake. He couldn't identify a weather balloon when he saw one, you know. Um, was he reprimanded in any way? Was he sent to whatever the American equivalent to Siberia was for making such a mess because it went around the world, and then, oops, sorry, it was a balloon. And, of course, that didn't happen. You know, he, he wasn't reprimanded. He wasn't sent to Siberia. In fact, 
I believe, and Kevin will, will, will of course, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and at some point later he went to work at the Pentagon. I'm, 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 but he, he put it this way, he wasn't reprimanded. He didn't get a kick up the backside. He didn't get a rap on the knuckles. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes, really, you know, because surely he would have been in trouble, you know, he, he brought the media down on Roswell looking for aliens. Um, so that's the way I looked at it. And, and I don't know what Kevin would make of that. Well, I think what we need to look at is, and by the way, he would have been sent to the uh, 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 mess kit repair center in Bakersfield, <laughs> California. <laughs> there really was no reprimand to anybody at Roswell for uh, unleashing this story, which was very important around the world for two days until they managed to kill it. Uh, with General Ramey's announcement that it was just just a weather balloon. But there really was no repercussions. I was talking to Walter Hopp one day, and I'd found an article in a newspaper that said that uh, they had been severely rebuked from uh, for this press release. And I asked Walter about that, and he said, no, nobody from the Pentagon called me. There was no re repercussions for anybody's career. Everybody who was involved, Blanchard, who, the commanding officer, who probably would have been uh, rebuke more than anybody else because it was his responsibility ended up as a four-star general and the uh, uh, vice chairman of the joint chiefs of staff uh, probably would have been the um, uh, chief of staff at the air force had he not uh, died of a heart attack so their careers weren't in impeded at all by this horrendous mistake of claiming they had a flying saucer they were able to just suppress the story until jesse marcel kind of opened the door in 1978 and then the Everything else fell into place, so that's that's uh, you know, Philip's right that he there was no um, repercussions for announcing that they had a flying saucer, and and I think the repercussions probably would have fallen more on Blanchard than Marcel because Blanchard was the commanding officer. Um, Marcel was kind of a, um, a bit player in this uh, whole thing. Uh, when, you, when you look at it, his name surfaced in the newspapers, of course, as did Walter Hott, called Warren Hate periodically. But it would have been Blanchard's responsibility, and Blanchard would have taken the majority of the heat. So this would have been pri previous to any reports of, say, men in black trying to intimidate witnesses or anything of that kind? There, um, I think one of the first cases of men in black was just days prior to this in uh, Washington, D.C., but I think that, I'm sorry, Washington State, but I think that has been pretty much proven to be a hoax. Um, but it was basically before this whole men in black thing began as well. But I, I look at it from the military point of view, and if this had happened, uh, you know, if I'd been involved in this, would have been what would have happened to me if I had made this announcement like this? And I can't see where anybody career was damaged by this at all and it seems to be from our perspective now in 2022 uh, a horrendous mistake to have made but they they handled it with great aplomb in in 1947 or managed to bury the whole thing for 35 40 years before just marcel came out and then it was even longer after just marcel came out before we really got the interest in roswell uh, going and that happened in uh, around 1990 1991 Kevin, are there any new witnesses at this point, uh, or is that basically impossible? I mean, we know about maybe family members of witnesses, but uh, is there anything new, any new data, any new uh, witness accounts that have, you know, come to light of late? There's really nothing new that we can find. I know Don Schmidt and Tom Carey are now interviewing 
the grandchildren of some of these participants, but we have to remember that it was 75 years ago, and everybody would have been at least 20 years old, so you're looking at people who'd be in their mid-90s at this point. I think most of the, I think, I, I think it's safe to say all the first-hand witnesses are probably gone, and we're now dealing with second and third-hand witnesses, family members. We've looked for documentation, diaries, letters, things like that. The closest we've come is Ruth Barnett, who was the wife of Barney Barnett, obviously, who um, claimed to have seen something over on the plains of St. Augustine, and I think uh, Stan Friedman kind of linked that to the Roswell crash. I, I don't think he was right in that, but she kept a diary in 1947, which was the only year she kept a diary, and there's absolutely nothing to suggest that, any, that Barney had seen anything over on the plains of St. Augustine, or he'd come home upset, or he'd seen something he couldn't talk about, and that sort of thing. And that was, we're looking for that sort of thing, letters from families that are dated, some kind of date on it so that we can uh, say this you know, was written prior to all the hoopla about Roswell, and we just haven't found anything about that, which I think suggests how <laughs> carefully they were able to um, convince people not to talk about it. So they, you know, people weren't writing these things down. So we're left now with the verbal testimonies that are now we're talking about 75 years old. Yeah, hold that thought. My guest is uh, Kevin Randall along with Philip Mantle. Crash landing on Into the Parabnormal will continue. If you think this hour was mind-blowing, just wait until you hear what's next. Into the Parabnormal will be right back. space you never know where you'll land we can guarantee it will be into the paranormal crash landing our episode of into the paranormal on this saturday into sunday with my guests philip mantle and kevin randall philip author of the book ufo landings uk Kevin, author of the book, Understanding Roswell, the true story of what happened in Roswell in July 1947. I'm interested in your take. Let's go back to Kevin first here uh, about the recent revelation from the former deputy sheriff, Charles Forgus, who commented about uh, dead alien bodies that were supposedly lifted out with a crane and hauled away. I don't know that I've heard that version of the story previously. Had, Had you, Kevin? Yes, I had. We looked into it uh, several years ago and could not find any evidence that it was uh, authentic. Uh, His descriptions of the area don't match, the timing doesn't match, and the fact that by the time he would have gotten into the area, the roads were all blocked off and he couldn't have gotten to a location to have seen um, the craft, the debris field, or the recovery of the bodies. So this story just doesn't make any sense to me. So his clearance as being a, a sheriff wouldn't have got him any special access to the information in order to make that claim. The the military would have laughed at him. 
Okay. While he might, might while, while George Wilcox, the sheriff in, in Roswell, might have cooperated with him, certainly when he gets to the military, they would have said, well, we're more heavily armed than you are, so go away. Um, no, it doesn't make any sense. I did something on my blog a number of years ago. If you go to my blog and you type in his name, um, it'll take you to the article about the research that uh, I had done to see if that story made any sense, and it simply does not. But as far as the claim that there were four aliens, big eyes, brownish colored skin, is does that match the the accounts? There are a number of counts with different numbers of the bodies, and I think that might be more about the perspective this, of the specific witness as opposed to getting the information inaccurate. According to, I think, what would be the best source, uh, William Blanchard, he told Chester Lytle, and Lytle was a scientist who was responsible for a great deal of uh, work on the atomic bombs, the triggers for for the bombs during the Second World War, and then he uh, did other work, classified work for the government. And Lytle was in Alaska, at an Air Force base in Alaska, and the name of it escapes me, and his wife was in Chicago and she was about to give birth and Blanchard was there. Blanchard had since moved out of Roswell and arranged for them to take a flight to Illinois. And on that flight, it, the story came up and Blanchard told uh, Lytle there were four bodies. And I think that's probably the best source we have is four bodies given to us by, by Blanchard. There are others that said four bodies. And I think the, uh, the problems with the skin color and things like that, I think that is more the conditions under which people saw the specific bodies as opposed to something that is a universal trait. I, I think a good example of this is our original conception of the Neanderthal man was it was a stooped creature uh, type thing. And what they discovered later on is the first um, bones that they had unearthed was an individual that had arthritis and gave us the, the stooped evidence for that. So that, um, we had a, a, a misidentified picture of what the Neanderthal looked like. And I think we got some of that going on in Roswell. It's that people saw something specifically under certain lighting conditions or under certain other conditions. It gave us, gave them an inaccurate perception of what uh, things look like precisely. But we have, we have descriptions of them being smaller than humans and um, you know, thinner than humans and that sort of thing. And I think we can look at that with a fair, fair degree of accuracy. Philip, what's your thought on the whole uh, Roswell situation? Me personally, you know, I'm I'm not as convinced as Kevin is that it's it's extraterrestrial. Um, And I have no evidence to prove this. I'm not saying Kevin and his colleagues are wrong in anything like that. Um, It's the things that are missing that still bother me and and others. I'm I'm not alone in this, and I know Kevin's thought about this. Um... If it were an ET vehicle, surely there would have been people working on it <clears throat> from a whole range of different disciplines, which in turn would have produced a mountain of paperwork and other things, and, and, and none of that has surfaced. Uh, I think probably, that, you know, at that time, of course, the most secret project the U.S. had ever had was in the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb, but even that was leaked to the Soviets. Um, and... and but so it's, it's the things that are missing, and of course, Kevin's right. You know what they should be looking for now is 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 paperwork, um, diaries, letters to loved ones that are lying in basements, attics. You know, somebody's garage, 
that's the next set of evidence. And that's where the Charles Forgus thing came from. Um, A a production company in the States contacted me some years back. One of their clients had been a um, private detective, a lady, and she died. And her son was going through her files, and they found one called Roswell. And in it was a videotaped interview with this Deputy Charles Forgus. He didn't come from Roswell, by the way. He, he came from a place called Big Spring, Texas. And he was a deputy. He's genuine. You know, he was in the in the military prior to that during the Second World War. I have his discharge papers. So it was always, but he, you know, checking some of his facts, he did get certain things wrong. When you view the video, the people that are talking to him obviously ask him very leading questions, and he's a little bit confused as well. But nonetheless, what you do is you put that out there and allow colleagues like Kevin and others that know far more about the subject than I do to look into it. Uh, but that's what we're looking for, is things that are lying around now, surely in basements and attics, rather than, as Kevin's pointed out, witnesses that will probably be, if they still are out there in their 90s, um, you know, they're probably, there's no more left, they've all gone. So let's hope something like that turns up, you never know. Well, one of the things that they tried to float out there is evidence of the ET crash at Roswell, if it was an ET crash, was that there was this uh, alien body of, you're familiar with this, of course, very much, Philip, of the alien autopsy. I was hoping you weren't going to mention that. (laughs) Well, why not? (laughs) But having said that, before the alien autopsy film was shown on television back in 1995, I informed in confidence a number of colleagues in different parts of the world, one of whom is the gentleman we're speaking to right now, Kevin. Uh, and I, I, I told him what the claims were by the guy's promoter, which was Ray Santilli. So, and, and Kevin never breathed a word of it. I told him in confidence, plus one or two others in different parts of the world. And, um, you know, there are still people today that believe it's real. It's not. It is a hoax. But again, you know, rather naively, Perhaps when I, when I first saw the film in Ray Santilli's office in London back in 1995, I said, what, what do you intend to do with it? Bearing in mind, we've been talking about this for 18 months be, before this. He said, I'm, I'm going to sell it on video. There was no television involved at that point, and I, I wanted it out in the public domain so others could scrutinise it. Uh, and it went out on the television around the world in August of 1995. And I thought, right. I'll sit back now and the answers will come flooding in. You know, somebody will contact and say, I'm one of the actors or I made the props for it or it's filmed in my studio. But nothing did. You know, it went absolutely silent. And it took a long time to, you know, you can say, oh, we knew it was a fake, yeah, but there's knowing and proving they're not the same things. You know, we all know O.J. Simpson was probably guilty, but they couldn't prove it, you know. And this was so it took me a lot of years to chip away at it bit bit at a time before he finally got to the to tell the full story. And the man who actually made it is called Spiros Malaris. Spiros is a filmmaker, he's also a magician, a businessman, and he was the man behind it. Race until he was the promoter. But it still attracts debate even today. 
stills from the alien autopsy film are, are like the go-to picture of Roswell aliens now. You know, all the sort of news stations that run a story on Roswell, if they're looking for a picture, you know, it'll come from the alien autopsy film usually. Um, and, and there's still interest in it, you know. When I, I, I published all my work in a book a couple of years back, uh, and it's there for all to see. Um, and so if anybody comes knocking on my door again and says, I've got a film of an alien, I'll say, I'll pass. <laughs> as simple as that. I know, I, I know a man who was in who was a lieutenant colonel in the in the air force you, you might you probably be better contacting him <laughs> but that's the way it goes we live and learn absolutely uh kevin the Ramey memo uh what do you know about that everything <laughs> what did it I'm say when, when did it come out uh, the Ramey memo is something that came in a, out of a photograph. Uh, once the debris was moved, or the alleged debris was moved from Roswell to Fort Worth, which was the headquarters of the 8th Air Force, the parent unit of the 509th, General Roger Ramey was the commanding officer of the 8th Air Force at the time. When that debris got to Fort Worth, uh, newspapers were told that it was being shipped there. And a fellow named J. Bond Johnson, who worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, was told to grab his camera and go out to General Ramey's office. He went out there, uh, took six pictures in Ramey's office, two of Marcel, two of General Ramey, and two of General Ramey and um, Thomas DuBose, who was the chief of staff of the 8th Air Force at the time. In one of the photographs, actually Ramey's holding the, the document in a number of the photographs, but in one of the photographs, you can actually blow it up and read parts of it. This is the Ramey memo. Now, the question is, is it a teletype that came to the newspaper that Johnson at one point said he'd taken to the office? Or was it a teletype message that had come through the communication centers at the uh, Fort Worth Army Airfield in 1947? So we've been looking at this, this memo, this document. We know it relates to Roswell. We know when the picture was taken. We know who took the picture. We know who uh, was in the picture. I've got a document that says it was transmitted over the um, wire services at uh, 11.59 p.m. on July 8, 1947. So we pretty well got the date established. We know all of that stuff, and, and it relates to the Roswell case. When we've attempted to blow up that one segment of it, the, the document is held at just sort of the wrong angle, just a little bit too far away from the camera. There are words that you can read in it with a magnifying glass if you have a good 8 by 10 um, blow up of that memo itself, but there's other words that are open to interpretation. One of the key phrases, in fact, the key phrase is something that's been interpreted as victims of the wreck, which is on the top line of the Ramey memo. If it, in fact, says victims of the wreck, then here is documentation that suggests it wasn't a weather balloon because there would be no victims of a wreck in weather balloons. Yeah. Others have read that as saying viewing of the wreck. Well, the wreck could be the weather balloons, and it changes the whole context of the thing. I've been involved in two instances where they've attempted to get scans of it at the, the best quality scans, the last one just a couple of years ago, just prior to the pandemic breaking out, as a matter of fact. And the equipment used was sort of stripping away layers of the negative, trying to trying to strip away the dirt and the, and the uh, other uh, obstacles on the negative itself, you know, digitally 
record the thing, and it took hours to go across through the whole negative. They they took the whole negative, and, and they sort of took it apart and then reassembled it. And in this is explained in, in depth in uh, Roswell, the uh, understanding Roswell. But it's also uh, I've got an article coming out in the Journal of Scientific Exploration that deal details this a little bit more for those who are interested in those precise details. When we've gotten to the bottom of it, we have not been able to resolve the issue of what that keyword is. There's, I, I mean, I, if you blow it up and I look at it, I can say, yeah, it says victims of the wreck, and I'll look at it an hour later. It says, no, it says viewing of, of the wreck. I, you know, it's one of those things you sort of see what you want to see, you know, faces in the clouds. The only thing that we can think of is our technology is going to be incapable of resolving this ever. It's just, just beyond our just beyond the ability to do it it's impossible to resolve it to a point where we get a consensus view of it the idea is now to apply artificial intelligence when our technology for artificial intelligence grows then we might be able to take this a step further but i think we've taken it the way we we can do it now with examining the negative and, and getting scans of the negative and reviewing that i think we've taken that as far as technology will ever take us so the memo is a document that general ramey's holding it's a document with an absolute provable provenance because of who's in the picture and all the other documentation we just can't quite read it there's there's hints that you can see weather balloons in there quite clearly you can see it says fort worth texas there's one place where it may say disc and there's a little bit of there's not consensus on that but the key phrase is the one that says if it says victims of the wreck that's the key phrase and that would that moves it out of the realm of something terrestrial to something something beyond that but we just cannot resolve that so we don't have the evidence that we need speaking of debris what other uh crash cases uh, have left debris at the scene? There's a number of cases where debris has been found. The ghost rockets from 1946, for example, in Sweden, and there were a number of cases where debris was left. Uh, they, they see the things hit the ground or something like that, and they would recover debris. At the time, they believed it was um, the Soviets maybe doing something to intimidate the Swedes, and we can see how the Russians now and the Finns and the Swedes are kind of at it about uh, them joining NATO. But uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed and a number of researchers were able to review the, the records, including um, uh, Klaus Sven from Sweden, they could find no evidence the Soviets were involved with the ghost rockets. So we really don't know what they were, but the debris that was recovered there has not been um, anything that, that suggests an extraterrestrial presence, but that just doesn't mean much at all. The, the one thing I've always worried about is you get a piece of debris, a real honest to God piece of debris from an alien spacecraft, and you take it to have it analyzed, and the laboratory says, yeah, it's aluminum. You know, it, it doesn't, there's nothing in it that distinguishes it as being extraterrestrial. It's just it's a material that we could have found here on Earth. And they talked about, one time they talked about um, isotopic ratios. And I know they displayed um, some debris in the Roswell case in 1997 at the 50th anniversary, where they talked about the isotopic ratios of this piece of debris they had didn't match anything naturally found on Earth. And everybody said, oh my God, there we have, we have it now. What they didn't account for was the possibility, which we now have the technology to do. They, we didn't have it in 1947, but there's nothing to link this piece of debris back to 1947, by the way. But, but we can change the isotopic ratios 
So the fact you have a piece of debris that has uh, an isotopic ratio that does not match anything naturally occurring on Earth doesn't mean it wasn't manipulated by our science. So we have no bits of debris that we can look at and say, yeah, this is clearly something of extraterrestrial origin. There was a event that took place. We all thought it was in Ubatuba, Brazil in um, September, I think, of 1957, where an object was seen to explode in the air and it rained this debris down on a beach and into the ocean. And it was made up of extremely pure magnesium. And we've all believed that was the date that it happened. Jacques Vallée threw a monkey wrench into that um, a number of, a, a couple of years ago when I was talking to him about this, and he mentioned that everybody had the date wrong. It was from the 1930s. Well, it was from the 1930s, and it clearly was material that was not available to Earth technology in um, at that time. The problem is the chain of custody is broken. We've, we've never been able to establish a good chain of custody. How did it get from the, the beach where the thing blew up into the hands of the scientists? It went through a reporter in um, Brazil, and once, we, once it gets into his hands and we can trace it, although the material that got to the United States went to the Aero Phenomena Research Organization. And here's kind of a funny story. They shared a, a small sample of it with the Air Force uh, in the spirit of cooperation. And the Air Force inadvertently destroyed the, dis, the, the sample while they were trying to get a spectroscopic reading on it. And they wrote back and said, can you send us more? And APRO was not inclined to send this anymore because getting a real sample of alien technology is a very difficult thing. But... Um, with the broken chain of custody, that, that kind of leaves that floating in the breeze. We've got this magnesium that was of extreme purity. By 1957, apparently Dow Chemical could create pure magnesium of, of equal purity, but it's a very complex process, an expensive process, and they had very small uh, samples of it. They didn't have a lot of it, so you'd have to explain, well, how did these people in Brazil get hands on this Dow Chemical metal? But that's um, one of the pieces that is very intriguing. I think Peter Shirok, Sturok at um, California has done a, a great deal of research into that and uh, uh, is trying to determine exactly what it was. But pieces of debris from a legitimate crash that we've been able to get our hands on, um, you know, we're, we're limited in where we can go with that. The memory metal, though, that's indicative of something that was not man-made. Well, so was the so was the um, fiber optics that Bill Brazel described to me. He, the way he described it was, you know, mono, he, he said there was something that looked like monofilament fishing line, and you'd shine a, shine a light in one end, and it would come out the other end. Well, he's talking about fiber optics. We didn't have fiber optics in 1947. Yeah. By the time we start talking about it, we have fiber optics. So that kind of um, reduces the, the 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 credibility there. It doesn't mean that Bill Brazel was lying about it. I mean, it just means that, that kind of technology now exists on Earth. The memory metal, we don't have anything like that. But then again, all we have is descriptions. We do not have in private hands, UFO researchers' hands, any of that debris at all. Bill Brazel had a number of pieces that were confiscated by the Air Force in 1949. Um, we've been out to that site a number of times uh, looking for it, the, the debris field that Bill Brazel took us to. I always kind of laugh. People say to us, well, how do you know you got the right debris field? Maybe you got the coordinates mixed up. I said, no, I was out there with Bill Brazel, and he got out of the pickup truck and says, here, fellas, this is where I found some of this stuff. So I'm pretty sure we got the right place. Um, we've been out there. We've done a classic uh, archaeological site survey. There have been other archaeological digs out there. We've never been able to retrieve anything. The Science Channel 
did a big expose, a big documentary about this. And they were out there with a um, an excavator and all of this sort of thing looking for that. And they filled bags and bags of material with uh, debris and put it in a vault. I want to know what here is about that uh, bag of debris put into a vault uh, when we continue uh, with my guest, Kevin Randall, and also Philip Mantle. And we will continue with them on crash landing into the paranormal. Paranormal News. Sky watchers, grab your telescope. A huge comet is headed our way and will make its closest pass this coming Thursday. K2 is one of the farthest active comets ever spotted. It was discovered in 2017 by the Hubble Space Telescope and has been steadily moving toward Earth since then. The comet will come within about 168 million miles of Earth. Comets consist of mostly frozen gases, rock, and dust. As it passes the sun, it heats up quickly, causing its solid ice to turn directly into gas. Unfortunately, K2 is still too dim to be seen by the naked eye. If you miss the this Thursday's window, the comet will remain visible through the summer before making its closest approach to the sun in December. I'm George Henry, Paranormal News. In 1947, a man by the name of Mac Brazel says that this is where he saw a UFO crash and along this two-mile stretch is where they say they found a ton of unearthly debris. Locals reported seeing military trucks carrying away what they described as an Objects that looked like a large acorn that had weird symbols around it. The object fell down over this hillside. People from as far away as Canada report they saw something falling from the sky that night. Reports of strange objects falling from the sky. Why are these UFOs crashing to Earth? And what's becoming of them? Originating from a remote location, nearly as top secret as Area 51. Yeah, and if you believe that, you'll really like this show. Into the Paranormal. I'm Jeremy Scott, my guest Philip Mantle and Kevin Randall. It is our program tonight, Crash Landing. And I want to get back to Kevin because he was he left us with an intriguing nugget. A bag of debris taken from a crash scene that was put in a vault and a vault where and and is it still there? There were sixty bags of debris, but it was it was uh, dirt and that sort of thing off what was alleged to be the crash site. And they're thinking that there might be something that would be very small that they could pick up or maybe microscopic. They would have to take a look at that would suggest something extraterrestrial. Uh, the, the vault, I understand, was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, not all that far from, from uh, the, the crash site. And the last I heard, the bags were disintegrating and all of the material was running together. And I don't know if they've cleaned it up or given up on that, but there was never any follow-up once the material was collected. And, and it kind of strikes me as more of a publicity stunt than it was um, a scientific search for uh, crash material. But as they say... Yeah, it, it, it was um, basically rotting away the last I heard. And I don't know if they've done anything to recover it or to review it. 
Philip, what about the evidence that you've collected reports of? It all depends what you class as evidence. Most of it is, is you know, eyewitness testimony. Um, there's very few documents or official documentation or photographs. Um, so we're talking about uh, high strangeness cases. You know, and I, I use Alan Hynek's um, category. Like the, the one I mentioned at Normanton, it's, it's, it's in daylight, it's close up. There's more than one witness. You have children and adults. Those children are now still talking about it as grown-ups. So it has layers of high strangeness, but there is no proof. There's no, you know, I couldn't take that to court and prove it happened, you know. Um, however, um, not in this book, but a thing I'm working on now with a, with a case in from 1973, I, I won't mention any details, we have found uh, evidence, some physical evidence, and we have found a number of independent um, eyewitnesses to these events. Kevin is aware of what I'm talking about. Um, and I think, you know, this is, is stronger evidence because these people are not related and they're all talking about this, the same thing over a period of several days, not all on the same date and same time. And so that that is the evidence that would would stand up in court, no matter what the subject was, whether it was a burglary or a shooting or, or you know, or, or a robbery. If you have independent eyewitnesses to these events, then you can take that to court, you know, and and, and they can testify, which they do, of course. You know, you have to you have to remember that a lot of court cases don't have any documentary evidence. You know, you know, before there was. CCTV all over the place. That didn't exist. There was a time, of course, if you didn't have a body, I don't know about in the States, but here, if you couldn't provide a body, then you couldn't have a murder trial. Somebody had disappeared, and nobody had seen anything, then it wasn't classed as murder. So, you know, the, the types of evidence have changed. What, what perturbs me somewhat, not about old cases, but about new ones, says there are more cameras around today than there's ever been. We all, we all have one. We're speaking to Kevin now on his, <laughs> yeah. you know, on his cell phone. But the, the photographic evidence seems to have, have, have got worse. And with the greatest respect to the gentlemen and ladies of the United States Navy, the three films that have been doing the round for the last five years, the Tic Tac and, and what have you, the, you know, the, the, these Navy jets... Again, Kevin will know better than I. Probably cost over a hundred million dollars each. But you know when the the film they've got is of a fuzzy blob, for God's sake, you know, and it's not filmed on the, the guy's camera phone on his cell phone. Um, but when we know that there are, you know, smart bombs and drones that can pinpoint the location, you can see the people in the street and the and the house they want to bomb or the car or whatever. You make it out clearly. But when it came to the UFOs, we end up with three fuzzy blobs again. And um, so that evidence seems to have got worse rather than better. Um, and I'm sure there's arguments to why the, you know, the three Navy films are a bit fuzzy. But um, so that worries me. You know, it, it should be getting better in, in, in my humble opinion, but it's not. However, there is an abundance of eyewitness testimony. There are some film and photographs 
that are authentic. There is documentation, as Kevin's been mentioning with Roswell. And it, and it depends how you interpret this evidence. Um, some people will say, well, I think it leans this way, or others will say it leans that way. We can all look at the evidence and, and come to a different conclusion, but the evidence is no longer, is, is without doubt, is there. Um, like I said, going right back to when I first started, you know, these people, are, I, I'd, I'd read a number of books when I first started, most of which, about things that happened in the United States, you know. And here I had a landing case in my back garden, you know, four or five miles from where I lived, which was unheard of, you know. Uh, uh, so, you know, these things, this, 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 this phenomena, plural, in my opinion, is there. There is something worthy of giving our time and effort and our own money in, uh, to, to investigate it, and something that, you know, in my opinion, the authorities, whichever authorities you'd like to mention, should take it seriously uh, and should be looking into it in an open and honest way. Whether that will ever happen is a different matter. That's how I view it. Philip, you've got an interesting take on the closer that the witnesses are to some of these landings, what, the less likely they are to be able to explain it rationally? Uh, yeah, that's just my opinion. And again, it also comes from Heineck. We know as UFO investigators that the vast majority of sightings reported to us have a conventional explanation. Most of them you can say it's just a light in the sky. God knows what the hell it is. You know, it's probably an aircraft, a drone, a Chinese lantern, Venus, etc., etc., etc. But when, like the lady and, and the children I mentioned, when you're only... 10, 20 yards from these things, and it's there staring you in the face. It's very difficult to think that they could have mistaken it for something that would take off and fly away without making a sound and without denting a blade of grass. Um, where this incident happened, <clears throat> it's nothingsville. There's nothing there of any interest. You know, there's, I mean, it's just a green hill. You know, and there's nothing there that would interest anybody as far as we're concerned. We did the usual checks. We, on, we only had uh, one helicopter port uh, a few miles away. Um, there was no police helicopter and no air ambulance in those days in, in, in this neck of the woods back in 1980. So, but, you know, we all know whether it's 1980 or tomorrow or today, Helicopter makes a hell of a noise. They come over our house on a regular basis, and you hear them before you see them. This was totally silent, you know. So that's that's my conclusion. You know, it's not impossible for people to misidentify things and get things up, but it's less likely when you're up close and personal to these things, the close encounters. Um, that is just my my opinion. Kevin, the Leveland, Texas case is one of those that many remember, and it actually goes to what I was saying earlier. This was one of those cases that was noticed by all by citizens, but also by police, 1957. In the Leveland, Texas area, which, by the way, is about three hours from Roswell, which is kind of a coincidence. But what makes this case important is the UFO interacted with the environment. And what this means simply is that a number of witnesses independently 
locations all around Leveland, Texas reported that as a UFO approached, their car engines would stall, the headlights would uh, fade out, and the radio would fill with static or go silent. And they reported this independently um, to the sheriff or to the Leveland police over a period of about three and a half hours on November 2nd, 1952. This was before we had cell phones and social media where if it had happened to you today, the first thing you'd have done when the UFO disappeared is I just had my car stalled by a UFO. Back then, that didn't happen. You didn't have that immediacy. There was no uh, news reports going off right now, breaking news type things going on. So these people were reporting to the sheriff something that had, they had witnessed, close encounters, Philip calls it, or uh, Alan Hynek invented, uh, of a UFO. They got a good look at it. I think the shortest period of time was uh, five minutes. One, time, one fellow watched it for 15 minutes. Couldn't, couldn't leave. His car was stalled there. Once the UFO left, he could start his car. The Air Force investigated, spent almost seven hours investigating, sent a mid-level NCO, mid-level sergeant to um, Leveland to in investigate. He talked to six people, uh, three of them who had seen the object. Um, going through the Air Force files, I could find references to five people. And going through the newspaper accounts, I could find references to people at 13 separate locations. And the sheriff suggested there were many, many, many more who had called in and they just didn't have the file on it. But the important thing about the Leveland case is after receiving several of the reports, the sheriff decided he should go out. And I don't want to say he would go out and look for himself because he would have been right there. But he went out to... Uh, see what he could find. With him was a deputy deputy sheriff. In a car behind him were members of the Texas Department of Public Safety. I think it was called that then as well. Basically state police. And here's the critical part. In a car behind them were a number of Air Force officers. Now, according to the story they, that the Air Force reported that the sheriff only got saw an object, the street, red streak of light in the distance. But I found newspaper articles and other evidence the sheriff got much closer. And he described it as an oval-shaped object, bright glowing red object, that sort of thing. And the next day, he went to the mechanic, the sheriff's department mechanic, to have his car looked at. The only reason he would have done that was he got close enough that it stalled his car. And if he got close enough for it to stall his car, he stalled the car of the state police behind him, and it st stalled the car of the Air Force officers. I can find no references in the Air Force investigations, they talked to those guys, those Air Force officers who would have been directly involved in this. The next day, the provost marshal at the Reese Air Force Base went out with the sheriff, and they were looking at some of the locations to see if they could find uh, evidence of a landing. And according to what the sheriff's family told Don Ber not Don Berlin, Don Berlinson, uh, who investigated around the turn of the century, was that the sheriff went to a place north of Ro north of Leveland. And I keep my town straight here. North of Leveland, talked to a rancher who had found a circular burned area on his property near Leveland. Uh, he had passed away since then, but um, Burlinson talked to the daughter who was there and was taken out to show and shown the, the burn site. So we have an eyewitness to the burn site. So here's what we have on Leveland. We have independent witnesses scattered all around the town um, that number in the dozens. We have the UFO interacting with the environment by stalling the car engines. We have landing traces. Now think of what would have happened had a proper investigation been conducted at that time. Instead of 
we sitting here talking about the possibility, maybe, maybe not, we'd be saying, yeah, now we got to figure out where they're coming from. The other thing is the Air Force is able to divert the conversation from what the people saw and what happened to the number of witnesses. And you see all kinds of articles around the level land case where they're talking about how many people really saw the craft and how many people really saw the bodies. This, I, I saw they um, uh, had their car engine installed. This is, this is not important information. What we need to get, get away is from the numbers of witnesses, but what they saw and investigated in a proper fashion. Seven hours by an Air Force NCO was not a sufficient investigation. And I suspect that there was a much larger investigation conducted behind the scenes where they interviewed these people. The sheriff, after having talked to the um, Air Force investigator, began talking about how he'd just seen a streak of light in the distance. Prior to talking to the investigator, he told reporters that he'd seen this oval-shaped object. Now we move to Don Berliner, who I almost mentioned earlier. Don Berliner interviewed the sheriff in the mid-1970s, um, you know, 15 years after the event, something like that. The sheriff, again, told him that he got close enough that he saw the object. He saw an object, not a streak of light. And then we talked to the sheriff's um, family, since the sheriff had passed away, and get a, additional information. So the Little Man case becomes very strong because of the number of witnesses and the interaction with the environment. What, what were some of the explanations that they used to explain this away besides those that you've talked about? Would they try to say it was, it was elect, an electrical storm or ball lightning, that kind of uh, thing? The Air Force investigator, his name was Norman Barth, by the way, uh, sent in a report with a number of possible explanations. One of them was they were, uh, this is in the Permian Basin, which is a big, big oil producing area in West Texas. And they burn off the natural gases and things out of the wells sometimes. So you see these, these oil derricks with these flames on top of me. So well, I was maybe those flames reflecting from the clouds. Well, the people living in the area have seen that. They're going to be re re recognized what it was. They talked about these the, the thunderstorms in the area. Thunderstorms weren't in the area. The weather report shows that they had there had been rain early in the morning, but by the time we get to the sightings in Level Land, the rain had passed out and the skies were clear. There's a report that I found coincidentally comes from the Roswell Weather Station reporting that the weather in Lubbock and uh, uh, Level Land, uh, the sky, sky cover was four tenths, which means to a pilot, we've, you've got some clouds at various levels, but uh, you have basically a clear sky there. So that's kind of ruled out. The Air Force still in the final index of the Project Blue Book files labels it a ball lightning, ignoring the fact that ball lightning, if it even exists in the form they were talking about, would be 18 inches to two feet in diameter and very short lived. It wouldn't be something that would be described as 100 foot in diameter, 200 feet in diameter. It wouldn't be described as being on the ground near a car for 15 minutes. So that the explanations that were offered simply do not work. So what we have here is documentation from the Air Force that gives us a lot of information. We have documentation to the newspapers that gives us a lot of information. We have the eyewitness testimony uh, that was gathered by any number of people at the time. So it's a very strong case of something very unusual happening in Level Land, Texas. What we do not have is a proper investigation at the time by an official agency that we can lay our hands on. Gentlemen, interested in your thoughts in the five minutes that we have left of tonight's program. Why are these vehicles crashing? Why are they landing and taking back off? Let's go to Philip first. Well, we would have to assume you know, we, that we're talking about ET. You know, I'm, I'm still not totally convinced 
<clears throat> personally, although I, I don't rule it out. You know, if I if I had a top ten of hypotheses, that would still be in there. But uh, for me, I, I I am pretty much back on the fence. I've I've wobbled either side of the fence down the years. That you know, um, and I, I'm I'm as puzzled now as I was all those years ago as to what we're actually dealing with. But there is something there. Yeah, and that that can't be easily explained uh, in a rational, uh, scientific manner. Kevin's just given you one example at, at Leveland, uh, and there are there are others. There are, I think, there are fewer cases like this than some would imagine, or some would have us believe, but they are there nonetheless. And um, I think our job, again in conjunction with what Kevin is saying, is to document this evidence as best you can. I think Jack Valley was, uh, you know, always say this, document the evidence as best you can and present it. Uh, and and that's what we attempt to do. I, you know, we're, we're civilian researchers. I know Kevin was in the military, but by and large, we are civilian. We are amateurs in that respect, put our own time and effort and our own money into these things. And we get a bad press at times. Sometimes that's deserved. But I think at other times, bearing in mind, you know, what we are and what we do, I think we, we do at times do a, an, an excellent job and, and, and we should be complimented as such and rather than ridiculed and taking the mickey out of by certain individuals and the media, you know. So I think we should applaud the work that, that our colleagues do around the world, even if we don't necessarily agree with them. Um, because if we all agreed... You know, if we all just sat around and said, yeah, yeah, great, yeah, yeah, we'd probably still be living in a cave, wouldn't we? We'd never have left the cave. We wouldn't have wanted to know, I'll go outside, no, 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 I'll leave it, you know. So, you know, agreement and discussion, there's nothing wrong with that so long as it doesn't get carried away with it. That's that's the way I, I see the subject. And your thoughts, uh, Kevin? I would say that the idea that we've had all these crashes is probably a little bit overblown. I don't think there's been all that many crashes when you start about talking about landing, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, there's been lots of those landings. There's been lots of landing traces. Uh, Ted Phillips, I think, cataloged some 4,500 landing trace cases, which had the UFO leaving burned areas or indirect evidence of its passing uh, on the ground. So we have we have an awful lot of those those kind of things going on. Um, I've always been asked, you know, why does the secrecy persist today? And I think that it deals actually with the deep state and the idea that uh, knowledge is power. And those in power do not want to reveal this because it's going to suggest they don't have as much power as we all thought. It may rattle their cage, so to speak. So it comes back to that, why we don't know more about it in the civilian world. The people who are in power are keeping it under wraps. I did a book called UFOs in the Deep State. and. Uh, got into why Jimmy Carter didn't reveal the evidence like he said he was going to when he was elected president of the United States. And there's a good explanation of exactly how the um, people who are aware of this are part of the shadow government are able to keep that information away from the president. So I think when we have to take a look at it, yeah, I'm kind of with Philip. I'm on the fence. I lean toward the extraterrestrial because it seems to be the most... Uh, Logical explanation, but I also understand the problems with interstellar flight, which kind of limits uh, the possibilities as well, I suppose. So it's still something that we're looking for, and we're looking for the absolute evidence, the proof that is almost irrefutable. And even if we came up with that, there'd still be those people who would deny it. So. 
I want to thank both of you for an amazing program tonight. Best to both of you. Kevin Randall, Philip Mantle. Thank you, thank Jeffrey. You. Thank you, Kevin. My pleasure having you both here from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I'm Jeremy Scott. Good night, all. Thank you.